First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And when you find that, say, I got it. <clears throat> the word of the Lord comes to us saying, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're continuing in our series, Studies in First Peter, Exile Studies in First Peter. And today, I want to give you the first part of this message, how we live really matters. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, how we live really matters. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, there is a discipline within the Christian theological community known as apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word that simply put means to give a defense for something, usually one's beliefs or ideas when they are questioned or challenged. Now, from a Christian perspective, apologetics means defending the orthodoxy or truth of our faith. Countless numbers of books, articles, university classes, sermons, lessons represent the serious nature of apologetics. One could easily earn a seminary degree on the subject and in the discipline of apologetics. Theologians explain well the nuances of the Christian faith. And brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. We need to know why what we believe is the truth. And we need to be able to communicate how this is the truth and why it's the truth to the world. So apologetics is a good thing. Now, as important as the discipline of apologetics is to the defense of Christian beliefs, we must take note that no amount of apologetics makes much difference to the average person that does not know Christ. Most unbelievers are not asking about Jesus in the halls of our seminaries. Most of them will not buy books that are apologetically driven or about the apologetics of the Christian faith. They, they won't buy those books that defend the veracity of the Christian faith. In fact, one could raise a fairly good argument that people in our postmodern millennial generation actually care to know little about Christ, preferring to live according to standards 
established by their own sensory perception or human intuition. Now, simply put, what they're really saying is, is that I want you to leave me alone with this Jesus stuff and let me and let me do my thing. Amen. I don't want you to bother me with with the gospel and Christ and all of the things. I really want you to leave me alone so I can live how I think I should live. And what ultimately happens is that individuals become the sole determinant of how they are to live their lives. And so they they seem less interested in issues of right and wrong, even to the point of justifying what is evil simply because they have good intentions. Somebody smarter than me said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend to do right or we have good intentions and we think the end will justify the means. Now, what concerns me and should concern every believer is that Christianity has gone from being at one point a primary influence or molder of culture to now being relatively insignificant in the cultural conversation. And more chilling is the fact that if you're here today and you're over 40 years old, Much of this change and marginalizing of the Christian faith has happened in your lifetime. And I don't know how it was at the turn of the 20th century, moving from the the agricultural age to the age of industrial revolution and all of those things and what impact that may have had on the Christian faith. But I do know that in the last 40 years, we have seen this country and our world move away from Christian values and virtues and move towards a self-indulgent, prideful and fleshly life all while having more churches than we've ever had all you know i grew up in the in the late 60s and early 70s and in the 70s there really wasn't any such thing as a mega church who, who knew? Who come on? Somebody that was back there with me. I know some of y'all young folks don't know, but but so you you didn't hear terms like oh we have a mega church. You know, usually the church was you know a couple hundred people get together on Sunday. We sing, we clap, we shout, we have church, and we go home. And those churches began to evolve and develop, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we required much less from our gatherings and it just became more important that we got together in a big arena. Somebody see where I'm going with this. And we said we were the church and we put on this grand display of religiosity and we said, well, look at us. 
It's 5,000 of us in one place. And we did this, and you've seen this, this phenomena develop and grow. And I, I, I'm, not really, I'm not really saying that it's, it's all bad, but what I'm saying is, is that in, the, in light of all of this, this growth in the megachurch world, we see evil rising at a greater rate every day. Why is that? What... What, what are, why are we not in, 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 the, in, the, in the scheme of how we gather in such large numbers? How are we not able to influence culture? And I'll tell you one thing what I think it is right now, without any shame, I'm going to say this. It's because we've become too accustomed to being in the salt shaker. Yeah. Yeah. See, salt doesn't have much impact when it hangs out with other salt. <laughs> Amen. The salt on your table at home doesn't really do anything in that salt shaker, but sit there and look pretty. That salt only has impact when a force other than itself forces it out of the salt shaker and into the world. What is God doing? What is God doing? God is squeezing his church. God is squeezing his church and saying, I've got to turn you upside down so that you don't have any balance. Turn you upside down so you can get out of the salt shaker and get into the world. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes, by the way. I just... (laughs) Flesh and blood did not reveal that to me. (laughs) So, so, so this has happened in your lifetime. You've, if you've seen it, and perhaps every generation can say that it's seen a rise in evil and a decrease in what is good. In fact, we know that our adversary Satan is the god of this world and has much under his control and influence. People seem indifferent to spiritual matters, though, on an entirely different level. They readily ignore what seems as obvious matters of right and wrong. Authority is meaningless in modern culture. Children are dictating to parents, and parents are defending children with no respect for authority. Have you been to a classroom lately? A public school? Have you, have you spent some time Really talking to a teacher. We have some teachers in our congregation. And every now and then I'll just talk to teachers and just kind of hear what they have to say. I mean, we are sending a generation of children to the school that have zero respect for authority. I know that's not comfortable to hear. But any time a child can look at a teacher at five years old and tell them what they're not going to do. My father used to say things like, you have a poor understanding. (laughs) But you know why? Because we have too many parents treating their children like they are equals. Well, baby, what you want to do? Mommy just want to make you happy. Mommy just want to want to help you. What do what do you feel like doing? <laughs> I wasn't raised that way. 
my feelings were not important. <laughs> I, I don't ever remember my father saying, how do you feel about cleaning your room? <laughs> Let's talk this through. I don't remember that, man. I didn't. I didn't have that that kind of that kind of uh, 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 upbringing. I had the upbringing that said, "Look, go in there, and clean your room, and don't come out till it's done." <laughs> Some of y'all know what that's talking about because you you get that you get that that order and you'd walk off and you'd say things like, "I mean, make me sick. I can't." Say <laughs> but I bet you said it to yourself. <laughs> you might say, what you say? None. I didn't say anything. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, just think, just think about this. Our school teachers are under assault. Children up in the face of a teacher. No respect for authority. Things are so bleak that one Christian told me, in essence, that since God said that evil would grow more influential in the last days, we as believers might as well just ride it out to the rapture. You got believers out there that think that. Ain't no, you know, it's not going to make any difference. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, so we might as well just be quiet. Some believers actually see no hope of influencing people for Christ. Now, it is in this condition of hopelessness that Peter speaks to his audience and even to us. Peter wants to remind the first century believers that in spite of persecution by the world, by employers, and even under unbelieving spouses, they still have lives worth living and full of meaning. Being a Christian still has great value. Even in a world marked by and trapped in its own sin, being a believer still has value. What is this value? What gives us purpose to live for Christ under the constant cloud of, of rejection and persecution? How do we find meaning in a world that rejects our Savior, rejects us, and in many cases leaves us lonely and fearful? Now, over the next two weeks, today and next week, we'll drill down into this section of 1 Peter and discover the tremendous value a Christian life holds in an unsaved and a hostile world. I'm convinced that many of us are living even right now with some degree of discouragement as believers because the world in which we live places such little value on that which we hold dear, which is the truth of the gospel. And we get discouraged. Because they want to make us feel bad. Because we're believers. Peter, in this text, makes the argument that in spite of everything, living for Christ really matters. And today we'll focus upon the internal preparation. See, before you get to this out, out external kind of thing, there are some internal changes you have to work on. 
You know, Jesus kind of talks about this because he says, you know, where where your treasure is, your heart will be. So the heart kind of dictates what you treasure and hold valuable. And so one of the things that happens for us as believers is that we're, we will oftentimes we jump to the external and we want to show everybody how we look as believers. And we, we we try to say all the right things. And some of us speak very good Christianese. Huh? Oh, you know that you know Christianese, don't you? You know a few words of Christianese. How are you today? I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> you learn that, right? You you hang around enough Christians, you learn Christianese. You know, you know how you oh, blessed of the Lord, praise God. You know, and, and, and you look at some some of those folks that, that Christianese all the time. You know, do you ever have a problem? <laughs> See, it's not that you're you're not saying things that are, are are not true. Of course, those things are true, but if they are not the result of a changed heart that says in spite of the sin that dwells in my flesh, in spite of the fact that if I had it my way, I'd do wrong more than right, in spite of the fact that I was lost and outside of myself and no way to be found, it was Christ that now has brought me to being blessed and highly favored. So, so, so we got to get this internal thing right. And, and Peter begins this section by, in, in verse 13, by what is in essence a rhetorical question. Because we ended last, last time in verse 12, we ended with, uh, with the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now he begins verse 13 by saying, but now, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, we already know that God is going to deal with those who are evil. But so he asked this rhetorical question. Who is it that's bad enough? Who is it that's tough enough? Who is it that can harm you when you are zealous for doing good? For what is good? And even though this question is rhetorical, there are, we can glean some important information from this question. In essence, Peter says, if you are zealous for good, no one can harm you. Now, let us take note here that Peter is not saying that people will not cause you to suffer if you see good, because that would be in direct contradiction what Jesus said when he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will, as my followers, have problems. He says, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. So Peter can't be saying that, that, that we, we will not have to suffer. He can't be saying that we will not be persecuted. But what then is he saying? He's speaking of the promise of God that nothing shall harm you. Nothing shall prevent you on the day of judgment that believers will suffer no harm. In other words, the motivation that he's giving here in this rhetorical question, he's really saying that when, when you are a child of God, when you are a true believer, you don't have to put your hope in how people treat you here. Amen? <laughs> Your hope is in 
the fact that when this life is over, those folks you say, I'll fly away, amen. <laughs> when this life is over, I am going to a place where I'll be with Christ forever. Right there, right there is the place where the enemy prohibits us from enjoying who we are in Christ. If you really believe that you are a child of the king and that this world's not the end, but you're just a pilgrim passing through, and you on your way to the promised land. If you really believe that, let the winds blow. Let the breakers dash. Let the thunder roll. It does not matter because I know that Jesus has me in the palm of his hands. And one day I'll see him say, servant, well done. That's where Satan wants to attack. And so, and so Peter says, you have to believe this. So the first internal preparation that we must go through in this in this rhetorical question he says we've got to be zealous for what is good if you know that this world's not your home then you shouldn't have any reason not to be zealous for that which is good now the word zealous in the greek text means to defend and uphold a thing vehemently contending for a thing now that that's that's more than just saying well, Christianity is okay. <laughs> That's not zealous. It's more than just saying, well, you know, the right thing to do is. But it's actually being in pursuit, contending, convincing, standing, being putting yourself at risk because you believe that right is the truth. I knew it wasn't going to be too many amens right there. I, now, now, Pastor, don't be asking me to do too much of that. <laughs> Watch this now. What he's saying is, we are always to uphold what is good. Always. Always. And it begins in our own lives. See, we think being zealous for good means that, that I, I get to tell you what's wrong with you. Amen. You know, that's right. That's right. You know, husbands, you zealous for good. You get to tell your wife off. Wives get to tell your husband. That's not what it means. Being zealous for good means that we are always in the pursuit of what is right. First, as it applies to our own lives. God, I just took all the fun out of it, didn't I? Just, <laughs> see, now it's a whole lot more fun to tell other people about themselves. But God wants to hold up the mirror until you look at your life. So now, now, now being zealous for, for what's good is obviously very difficult in the face of evil. But our hearts must carry the commitment to what is right before the Lord. We must stay committed to doing what is right. Peter goes on to say this about the persecution generated 
by the pursuit of what is righteous. Look at verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Once again, once again, don't get it twisted. Don't think because some of you are saying I've been suffering for right. I haven't got my blessing. <laughs> when is my blessing coming? <laughs> That's what some of you know. No, 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 no. See, don't, don't. When you understand this concept, God doesn't think of blessing in terms of time and space that we're here. God doesn't think of your blessing as a 2015 Lexus. <laughs> you know, we're good for that. We get a new car. Come on out here and meet my blessing. Do you think God is remotely impressed by what kind of car you drive? As a matter of fact, he might be depressed. Well, God can't get depressed. so (laughs) He might look at us and say, now, you went and bought that new car, but you won't give a dime to the church. Did I say that out loud? I got to move on here. (laughs) So God, God thinks that the blessing For us, as we suffer for what is right, is knowing that no amount of evil will ever have the victory as we stand for Christ. Paul puts it this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Oh, somebody, see, 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 you, you ought to start getting excited right now. I've been afflicted, but that means they tried to press me. They tried to crush me, but they couldn't do it. We, we are perplexed. There's just sometimes, Abel, where I don't understand why things happen the way they do. There's sometimes I don't understand when it seems like I'm doing the right thing. Evil is all around me. It's just I just don't understand why I have to deal with it. But he says here, I'm not going to be driven to despair. Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ. Y'all going to make me have church here. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground. I would just tell your neighbor, all of the ground. All of the ground is sinking sand. I can see Paul getting happy when he's writing this. He said, he said, now I've been afflicted, but I wasn't crushed. I've been perplexed, but I wasn't in despair. I've been persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I've been struck down, but not destroyed. Because I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And I'm doing it for one reason. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Look at the paradox. I carry the death of Christ so people can see the life of Christ. Oh, I wish I had somebody. I carry death so folks can see life. I'm dying to myself so they can see the life of Jesus. I got to I got to have this heart thing right. Now, now the next internal preparation that gives real meaning to this Christian life that makes our lives matter is overcoming the fear 
of being persecuted for truth. Peter writes, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. See, God is aware that there are people that want to destroy you and your testimony. God is aware that there are demonic forces that are working to rob you of the joy of being a Christian. But he says, have no fear of them. (laughs) Somebody getting ready to get set free right here. Stop worrying about what people think. You afraid to speak up because what they might say. You afraid you won't even put on a Christian t shirt. Now you don't even have to open your mouth. Jesus died, I mean, and rose again. Oh, I can't wear that. Somebody might might think I you know, you know religion and all can't talk to people about religion. Watch this now. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There is no doubt that fear may be the one thing that more than anything else prohibits us from embracing a life of true gospel witness. And when I say embrace, I mean you're seeking it. You want it. You're saying, Lord, use my life as a witness for the gospel. And I'm not going to rest until you do. I may have to drive a hoopty. But let the fact that it's thawed every day be a witness for Christ. Don't y'all look at me like you ain't never prayed getting in your car. Come on, Lord Jesus. Lord, I know I got to get to work, Father. Look at somebody just say, what's a hoopty? I don't know. Some of y'all know what a hoopty is. Now, now many of us and this myself included, have found ourselves afraid to stand because we, we, we worry about what others will think of us. We don't want people to look upon us in a negative light because, see, it's not in vogue to be a Christian in this culture because Christians are those hateful and intolerant people who, who have all these rules and regulations. And, and my goodness, I mean, we, who would want to join an unhappy bunch of folks like that? You know, that every time you look at them, their lips are pursed and they're, you know, they just look like they're not having any fun. <laughs> There's no joy. And, and you know, that's the world's perception of us. Where do you think they get it from? Say that again. They get it from watching us. We look like we're not having any fun. Well, I join a group of people that the no fun family. <laughs> you know. And so, and so watch this now. And, and, and we have to understand that we have to break this, this mold of fear of being who God called us to be. It is imperative that we reject the natural fear that wells in us and embrace our faith in God so that unbelievers will know the truth of the gospel. The question is, the question is, how do we overcome this fear? How do we overcome it? Now watch this. I'm convinced that much of our fear comes from a focus 
on what we have to lose in this world rather than a commitment to what we gain in the next world. We are afraid because the first thing the enemy wants us to start thinking about is what we're going to lose. Well, if I stand up for Christ, I'm going to lose a friend. You know, I might lose my job. I might lose some money. I might lose. If I stand, if I stand up for Christ, I'm going to lose my, my, my standing and nobody will call me anymore. They won't hang out with me. All my, all my homies and friends that I grew up with, they, they, won't, they won't want to be bothered with me if I stand up for Christ. So what I do is I'll make this little compromise. They won't come to worship with me, but I'm going to the club with them. Now, you know how you feel when you hit the club. I mean, you ain't even paid your cover charge, and you're already going through this. Oh, what am I doing here? I know I don't really have any. At least that's how you ought to feel. <laughs> I shouldn't be here participating in things that are not honoring my Lord just so I can be approved by the world. Now, some of y'all look at me like, Pastor, wait a minute. I, you don't want me to have any fun? Shouldn't I have fun in life? See, that's why the church has to break out of this this habit that only time we gather is for worship. We've got to start learning how to gather just to have fun with one another. Huh? I mean, we all learn how to gather to enjoy the beauty of the Lord and, and realize that every time we gather ought not be, oh, woe is us. But there ought to be some gatherings that say, we just came together to have a meal and have some fun and, and enjoy one another. <laughs> so, so, so we focus on what we have to lose rather than what we gain in the next world. If our lives are truly committed to Christ, it does not mean that we will not feel fear. But it does mean that our fears are relieved in Christ. Paul says this about fear in 2 Timothy 1 and 7. You've heard this verse perhaps many times. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That says a sound mind in, in some translations, but but self-control. He gave us, he didn't give us this fearfulness, but he gave us power and love and self-control. When we as believers remember who we are in Christ, fear begins to dissolve when the attention of our minds leaves the false glory of this world and rests in the true glory of Christ. We are no longer afraid. To stand in even the most difficult of circumstances for Christ. And I believe in my heart that it was in this setting that the Apostle Paul began to write with a Holy Spirit filled boldness. In Romans 8 and 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then the Holy Spirit just really gets in him and takes over and and says, No! (laughs) 
<laughs> in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who is Him, through Christ who loved us. Now he's really getting excited in verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all. That crazy person on your job, they fall into that all of creation nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to give God some praise. Now, now when, you, when you have that, you overcome fear. Because you know that nothing can separate you. You can talk about me like you please. You can call me everything but a child of a king. But nothing. Look at somebody and just say nothing. Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. The last thing is that this final internal preparation is, is that you need to honor Christ in your heart. Verse 15 in 1 Peter 3 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What Peter is saying to the exiles is that no amount of persecution is able to distract you from living for Christ. When we honor Christ as worthy of reverence in our hearts. Now, right here, you're saying, Pastor, tell me how, how I, what, you know, what I need to do. This is it right here. This is it right here. Because a Christian life is incredibly difficult to live when you have not honored Christ in your heart. When you do not consider in your heart that Christ is holy, that he is worthy of all honor and all praise and all worship. When he is not preeminent in your heart, then you will have difficulty living as a Christian. So get this now. It is not your giftedness. (laughs) It is not your giftedness that you look to in times of difficulty. It's not your ability or my ability to speak, to teach, to pray, or any such thing that really makes my life matter. What really makes my life matter is if I honor Christ as Lord in my heart, now my life matters. Nothing, nothing, nothing we do on the outside matters if Christ is not in the place of honor on the inside. Worship becomes this mundane thing that we're just going through the motions. We, we sit there and the pastor says, clap your hands. We clap our hands. Pastor says, say amen. Amen. Pastor says, give God some glory. Glory to God. And there's no realness. There's no internal drive. There's no expression of what's going on in your heart because you're doing it and just going through the motions. But when Christ is honored deep on the inside, 
you don't have to wait till somebody say, say amen. You don't have to wait until somebody say, give God the praise. You might be at the kitchen table and say, excuse me, I just got to praise the Lord. Somebody start praying over your food, you get excited. Uh, thank God for the, oh, thank you, Jesus. Praise just jump out you at any minute. You driving down the street, you see, you see a sign that says one way. You're like, one way to Jesus, that's right. Everything becomes about Christ when he's in the place of preeminence in your heart. And even when you suffer, you suffer knowing that Christ is being honored in my suffering. When your marriage is on the rocks, honor Christ. When your life circumstances have been of such that you don't know where your next meal is coming from or your bills or how they're going to get paid, just honor Christ. I heard my grandmother say, he'll make a way. He'll make a way out of no way. I can't see how I'm going to make it, but I got to honor Christ. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to honor Christ in your heart? It means that nothing or no one is more important to you than Christ. Christians, I hear us. I've been guilty. You look at somebody you love and you be like, oh, I can't live without you. I love my wife. But for me to say I can't live, I don't want to live without her. That's a different argument. But if she decides to go the other way and play for the other team, then she's going to have to do it without me. Because Christ is more important than any person. Christ is more important than your boyfriend. Christ is more important than your girlfriend. Christ is more important than your job. When I get to yours, just say something. Christ is more important than your bank account. Christ is more important than your gifts or your abilities. Christ is everything. It means that the time, that you allocate the time God gives you in a manner that honors or gives reverence to Christ. It means that you relate to your world in such a way that Christ receives your reverence above everything else. Why should you honor? Because see, some of us still not convinced. I got to tell you, you ask the question, why should you honor Christ above all else? Here it is right here. Because he held us in such high esteem. 
that he came into this world, suffered the indignities of being born in a messy and insignificant place. He left the glories of the Father, of heaven, the joy of being in the presence of his Father every day and was born in Bethlehem in a place that was reserved for the animals. He came to this world for the express purpose of suffering and dying for our sins. Because he held us in such high esteem, he said that the least of you are not less than the best of you. He said that even though people around you may reject you, I find value in your life. Even though you have a tendency to do wrong more than you do right, I still find value. Who wouldn't honor somebody like that? He died and gave his life because of his love and his esteem for us. Is it that much? That he asked us to give our lives wholly over to him. That he may use us to win other people to the glories of heaven. It's not too much. When someone saves your life in uh, some cultures, when you save somebody's life, the person whose life you save is indebted to you for life. No matter what you ask them, they are required by their cultural distinction to do. And here Christ is saying, I saved your life on Calvary because justice demanded that you die. That sin has left a stain on you that the only thing that could clean it was my blood. And he washed us white as snow. So on the inside, know that you honor Christ more than anything else. And your life matters. The way you live matters. And next week, we're going to get into some more detail of how that matters. But I want you this week to really be focusing on in your life. How have I honored Christ in my life every day? How, how is he really sitting on the throne of my life? Who, who is leading my heart? If you do that, come back with anything other than Christ. I'm telling you right now, God is willing to, 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 to bring you to the place where Christ is preeminent in everything in your life. Don't worry about getting called a fanatic. What do you think the definition of fan is? We got some Cubs fans in here, some White Sox fans, some Bears fans, some Bulls fans. It just simply means you're a fanatic. 
How you going to be more fanatic for the Cubs than you are for Jesus? <laughs> I got a good friend, and I'll, I'll tell you this story and we'll move on. A good friend that's a Cubs fan. He went out and bought this year Cubs tickets, season tickets. Now, I, you know, he didn't tell his wife. Thousands of dollars. He wears Cubs paraphernalia. Cubs t-shirts, Cubs hat. Got a little Cubs stuff in the car. You know, some of us so deep, we got Cubs house shoes. <laughs> Cub bathrobe. I'm going to stop right there. Just <laughs> I don't want to know anything else. But, but you think about it. You do all of that to identify with who you are a fan of. And somebody asks you to lift your hands for Jesus. And you're like, I ain't lifting my hands. See, sometimes we all leave with a little conviction in our heart, right? Don't let your affinity for this world be greater than your affinity and your love for Christ. That's all I'm saying. Amen. Stand on your feet all over the room. If you're here today.